Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream of the message. It's a blessing to uh, share the Word of God with you today, and also Happy Mother's Day to all those mothers out there, and uh, you are loved and appreciated, and uh, what a blessing to be able to come to the Lord, to hear His voice, to have Him speak, and uh, may He indeed touch our hearts today. And touch is one of the first senses that we uh, develop as human beings. It's really crucial for our development. Infants, they find being held by their mom or dad to be really comforting and will reach up and want to be carried and held. And I'm no expert on this, but studies and experience shows that physical touch, it affects how we feel. It, our, our stress levels, it, it helps reduce them. It helps communicate care and compassion and affection. The firm uh, shake of the hand or a pat on the back or an embrace, there's a connection there that words alone cannot make. And, and I found the online church experience a bit challenging in this regard because I love greeting you. I, I love greeting um, visitors and shaking your hand and looking in the eye. And I fa- find like teaching in this format's kind of like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it into the sea and hoping that somebody will see it and they'll be ministered to by it. But uh, I look forward to, to greeting you that way again in the future. And we are in this unique season where... We're encouraged to keep our distance, but praise the Lord that he's able to touch us. He's able to minister to our needs personally. And when we are physically touched, it provokes a response, doesn't it? It may be a welcome feeling. It may be an intrusion. It can calm us or make us want to move away or or even react angrily. And when we're touched emotionally, it it provokes a response. We're either going, we could cry because of the emotions generated, or we could shout because we're really happy. But over time, those feelings fade. Um, But the Lord, he's able to touch us in a way spiritually that transcends physical touch or emotional feelings as we respond to him in faith and obedience. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for your goodness. Thank you that you do minister to our hearts. You are able to touch us where we need to be touched. And sometimes uh, your word is so confronting because we are set in our ways and our ways are often wrong. And we pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would be humble before you, that we would be hearers of the word and doers of it, not just hearers only. Thank you for uh, just this opportunity, Lord, to proclaim your goodness and to Share the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 41. Last week, we talked about Jesus stilling the sea and going, crossing over Galilee to the Gadarenes, and how there was that demon-possessed man that met him, and how um, Jesus delivered the man from the demons. And then the townsfolk, upon hearing what happened, they asked Jesus to leave, and he did. Um, and as I studied this week, I realized I made a mistake because Jesus did return to Gadarenes and the region of Decapolis. But um, that verse that I used in Luke 8:40, it says, "So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they are all waiting for him." While it's true Jesus did return to the Gadaren region, this is actually talking about him going back to Galilee. Because remember, Jesus started in Galilee. He said, "Let's cross to the other side." They went across. And then they came, uh, the, the, man was demon pos- the man who was demon-possessed was delivered, and then they returned to the other side. And that's 
what that verse is talking about. If you want to read about the time when Jesus did return to the Gadarenes, to the region of Decapolis, that Gentile area, how he healed the sick that were brought to him, how he did miracles and people glorified God, you can read about that in Mark chapter 5, verse 20, or Mark 7, 31 through 36. So my apologies for the error, and uh, praise the Lord, he uses flawed instruments to do his work. So we will be in Luke 8, 41. It says, And behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Among the people who welcomed Jesus upon his return to the Galilee region, there was this man named Jairus. He was the ruler of a synagogue. His responsibility was to supervise the services and the building and uh, kind of a pastoral role. It's possible Jesus at some point had already taught in his synagogue and that's how he knew Christ. But he expresses this desperation. He falls down before him and begs him to come to his house. And Jairus explained what Jesus already knew, that he had a daughter, an only daughter at 12 years of age, who was very sick and was dying. The Gospels of Mark and Matthew both say that he asked Jesus to lay hands on his daughter so that she might be healed and live. And given his role as this uh, ruler of a synagogue, it was really a bold statement. Because here's a man of, a very respected man and... uh, working with the Pharisees, with the scribes and the Levites in the, in the synagogue who were largely opposed to Jesus, for him to come to Jesus publicly and fall down before him when, when people questioned uh, you know, how valid Christ and his ministry was, it was a big deal. He falls down before him, says, please come and heal my daughter. Now, here's a question for you to consider. What does it take for you to be desperate enough to publicly plead with God on your knees because he's your only hope, he's your only help. Like to be willing to admit that you are struggling, that you have a problem that only God can fix because you can't do anything. The physicians can't do anything. This sense of urgency, I think it's largely a foreign concept. We have a lot of our needs met. We can go to doctors and we can... Uh, we do can just turn on the tap for water, and even in a drought. Um, we have emergency services and ways to communicate with one another and coordinate and, and have a semblance of control over our lives. But they didn't have a lot of that. And we can look to those things rather than God. And armed with the truth of Scripture, knowing that we have been invited to pray and to find mercy and grace to help in time of need in the throne room of God, we can take that for granted and imagine that we're almost deserving of this privilege that we're not deserving of. I mean, Jairus, he was a respectable man, but he was unworthy to come before the Lord. He was unworthy to bring his request to God, but Jesus listened to him. We're not worthy of the honor God bestows upon us as his children, but praise the Lord, he does invite us to come. And let's not take that for granted. It says that uh, Jesus went with him, and as he went, the people thronged him. Now, this word, um, thronged, it's the same Greek word as in the parable of the sower, where the seed was choked 
by the weeds. So he was, he was, Jairus is in a hurry, but Jesus is going nowhere fast because the crowds are just bumbling around him. Everyone's touching him. And uh, it must have been just terrible to have this sense of urgency, but Jesus can't even move. Verse 30, 43. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any came from behind and touched the border of his garment and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, master, the multitudes throng and press you and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me for I perceived power going out from me. As Jesus is slowly working his way through the crowd, following Jairus to his home, we're suddenly introduced to this new character, another person, this woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. She was likely an outcast because of the uncleanness under the law, because of this flow of blood that was beyond her period. Um, and this is explained in Leviticus 15, 19 through 33. From the beginning of a flow of blood, it would be um, seven days before you could be considered clean. So you need to have seven clean days and then you could wash in water and offer the sacrifice for that. But if during that time, if you had a flow or a discharge, you would have to live in relative seclusion from others. You, you couldn't share beds. You couldn't touch the same things as others because if they touched a bed that you had laid upon, if they touched a chair that you had sat in, they too would be unclean and have to go through purification. Now, in this woman's case, she was unclean until the flow of blood stopped. And uh, on the eighth day, after seven clean days, she would have to bring two doves or pigeons to make atonement for her uncleanness. And this is a very serious thing under the law. It says in Leviticus 15.31, Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. So this is like very serious, like don't defile the tabernacle of God because then everyone can be defiled and to willfully contaminate someone by touching them, that was a very serious offense. It could result in you being excommunicated by the Jewish community as a divine punishment. Luke says that the woman had spent all her money on physicians in vain, her uncleanness persisted and she had to be desperate to spend her whole livelihood on trying to find cures, but Nothing seemed to work. I shudder to think of some of the remedies she was subjected to. The word translated livelihood is bios, which is life. Her life was spent for 12 years trying to find a way to be clean, and she just couldn't. She'd had her hopes dashed so many times. To touch her was to become unclean. To touch anything she touched was also contamination. When Job suffered at the hands of God, his friends assumed it was because of something bad he did or something good that he refused to do. And I have no doubt that this woman's uncleanness, to some it was a blight upon her character, upon her virtue, in a close-knit community where she was known to be unclean because she couldn't participate in a lot of the activities and people know, oh yeah, it's because of that unclean, un un uncleanness of her. If she had a husband, she could not have legally sexual relations with them. It was just a really, really hard to imagine situation this woman found herself. 
And as Jesus is being jostled and hindered from moving in the crowd, she presses through and she creeps up behind him and she takes this chance. She touches the hem of Jesus' garment. In Matthew 9, 20 and 21, it provides us some insight into what she was thinking when she did this. It says, And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. She's moved by faith in Jesus. She comes from behind him in the crowd. She, she doesn't want to, to make a big scene. She touches his clothing and immediately her blood flow stops. She, fi- she feels a difference inside of her. And, and maybe she hoped to secretly glide away to be healed and like, wow, this is great. But then Jesus stops and Jesus asks the question, who touched me? All the disciples around Jesus are like, none of us have touched you with intent. And Peter's like, Lord, Everyone is touching you in this crowd, and you're asking, who is touching me? And Jesus says, somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. And while this is all going on, Jairus, he's in a hurry to bring Jesus to his home. The woman's hiding behind Jesus, wishing he would just keep walking. But Jesus, as he always did, he had knowledge and plans of things far greater than even the the people around him. On the subject of God's thoughts and ways, turn to Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. This is really neat. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We see only the edges of God's ways. If you imagine you know what God's doing in a situation, the first thing you need to remember is you're imagining, right? You're imagining, and that our eyes are easily fooled by appearances. And even if God was to do exactly um, as he said in a way that we expected or thought he could, there's much more going on than you can possibly know. When you come up with a good plan for God to implement, realize that's still your plan and his plan is way better. His ways are far higher. We're kind of like the dog who really wants to go on a walk. We're kind of focused on the lead. We're like, when that lead's in the hand of our our owner and it's like, let's go for a walk. We're like, right, let's walk. We want to go outside and we can't understand, like dogs don't think about the, the cardiovascular benefits of physical exercise. They don't know about the sun delivering vitamin D that aids the body's absorption of calcium and how it strengthens bones. Like they're not on that level. They're not, they don't have that level of understanding and we're kind of like that. We're thinking, walk, let's go for a walk. But God's, God's like, I have things I'm working on too that are way bigger than what you're thinking about. He has redemptive plans that nobody else knew about. And you know, if, if we had a perfect world, it would be one where miracles are unnecessary. We have no need because it's all taken care of, all right? That's, that's our perfect world. Everything's fine. No problems. 
And it's often because of our problems, we realize that we need God. We need him and we need his help and his strength and his mercy and his grace. Our ways, our thoughts, they only lead to misery and death. But if we'll return to the Lord in faith, he'll have mercy on us. He'll pardon us. He'll fulfill our need for forgiveness and cleansing and salvation because God is a healer. He restores us. He's a savior. He's a protector. He's a provider. And he opens our eyes to like the things that we have and enjoy. They're all a gift from him. And our life is not our own. It's to be used for him because he is good and great and eternal hope. Luke 8 verse 47. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. When Jesus suddenly stopped and questioned who touched him, the parallel account in Mark, it says why she was not hidden. Because Jesus looked right at her when he said this. Mark 5.32 says, And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. So it wasn't like he had no idea who touched him. But as he turns around to look upon her who did it, he says, who touched me? And she had eye contact. She realizes what had happened. And it says she came forward and fell before him trembling. She declared before Jesus and everyone that was around, this crowd of people, the extent of her personal and very private problem, how long it had been going on for, the reason why she came forward and touched him, and how she was miraculously healed when she did. This demonstrates that genuine faith, it's, it's attended by boldness and action. She was bold to come to Christ despite her uncleanness, and then she admitted it before God and everyone what, did she, what she had been suffering from. And I think this degree of personal transparency, it makes us a bit uncomfortable, but it's really desperately needed and completely scriptural. One knock some people have on the church is that we are flawed people who face real struggles, yet we often play the hypocrite because we pretend that we don't have problems and we don't suffer in the ways that other people do with sin and and addictions and struggles. And it's not a place where people can feel safely, be vulnerable and feel safe without judgment or censure. I mean, when I grew up, people made a very big deal about things like your hair or the clothing that you wore, the music that you listened to as a measure of your faith, whether you were walking with Jesus or not. And how the church over the years, many times it it retreats into damage mode and tries to quiet things down rather than being sincere and open about an issue or a problem or admitting a mistake. And when we are tempted personally, when we are battling sin, We feel like, or some people feel like just being tempted, it's almost a disqualification from service. It's ironic that we can have a specific problem we hope to cover with general prayer because we're too ashamed to admit it. It's kind of like my car um, not running properly and just saying, well, maybe new tires will help. But I haven't asked the mechanic to actually run a diagnostic and hook it up to a computer. It's not really the problem 
Sure, there's a knocking sound, and it's probably not the tires, but at least I'm going through the motions. No, we need to be able to, because if we know what the problem is, yeah, I accidentally, I put it in reverse when I was going forward, and I shouldn't have, and it's an embarrassing mistake. Instead of saying that, we, we, we just say, oh, yeah, the car's not running great, or I'm really kind of not living up to how I should be. We prefer to keep our issues secret. We want to keep them in confidence because we don't want people to have the wrong idea about us and to gossip about it. And I've learned that Romans 2, Romans 2 verse 1, it's very instructive in this case. It says, Therefore you are an inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. If I am worried about being judged by others, guess what? Paul is saying that I know I too judge others. If I'm concerned about people gossiping or talking about me behind my back, I can know that I am guilty of the same. That if I'm suspicious that people are assuming the worst about me, I'm only aware of it because it's endemic to my fleshly nature. It's in me and that's why I'm aware of it. That's why I have this suspicion and this fear. You know, our kids know if we're putting on an act. It's plain before God every day. And this woman, she makes this full disclosure in public, both of her uncleanness and then the transformation that took place because of Jesus. Now, was Jesus mean to call this woman out, to stop walking, to kind of draw attention to her? Because he totally did. Not to mention how Jairus must be feeling during this delay. Well, he didn't call her out to embarrass her, to sledge her, or to humiliate her. No, he wanted to affirm to her and to all others that she had indeed been healed miraculously by faith in him. So he affirms that she is clean, that she has been healed, and it came through faith in him. Not because um, she had suffered for a long time or he felt sorry for her or she had boldly pressed through the crowd to get to him, or because of the secret healing power in the hem of his clothing. It wasn't about any of that. It was because of her faith in Jesus, she was healed as she sought him. And it's faith in Jesus, not the physical touch of oil on your skin, or the hands of a pastor or an elder praying over you. It is faith in Christ that brings healing and wholeness. And do you notice what he calls her? Daughter. It's the only time that we read of Jesus calling anyone daughter. This woman, she was unclean. She had been cut off from fellowship with her brethren. Now she has a restored fellowship with God and everyone else through Christ. Think of Jairus' love for his daughter. He ran to Jesus because he was desperate for her healing. Jesus, his love for this woman was even greater because he came to earth he stopped on those streets of Galilee, he spoke with her, and he went on to die for her and her sin so that she could be redeemed, born again, and live forever. Maybe her, her own husband or family had disowned her, but in this moment, Jesus adopts her and he calls her daughter. It's a very caring and affectionate term. He will also do for all who trust in him, who seek him in faith. If we'll admit our uncleanness, he will do that miracle to clean your mind, to give you a new heart, to give you a new start, a new life that is glorious through him. We're still flawed. We make mistakes, but praise the Lord. He is a restorer. 
of those who seek him. Luke 8, verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. Jesus stops. He's conversing with the woman. He's giving her a message of peace, calling her daughter. A messenger arrives from Jairus' house with some really tragic news. He says, don't bother the teacher. Uh, Your daughter is dead. The news that troubled Jairus, it did not trouble Jesus. It says he answered, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. And I love how Jesus connects belief in him um, with the choice not to fear. We have to stop justifying our fear based upon the news we hear or the situations that have happened because she really died. Jairus had to put that out of his mind and in faith in Christ, choose not to be afraid and choose to trust him. Fear, it goes by so many pseudonyms, we, we often don't see it under its many disguises. Things like dread, foreboding, threat, alarm, quaking, anxiety, worry, concern, and cowardice. I just busted out the thesaurus uh, to see, well, what, what are there other words that we could use for fear? And if fear doesn't grab you, one of those others definitely will. That we, okay, that's real in my life. And, it, and we might be more afraid, we might be afraid more often than not. But when we believe in Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of anything because we're like the child who's carried in the arms of his father where he trusts his father's grip. It's not how hard he can hold on to his father, but his father's got him. And it's like you're sliding down that slide and you feel out of control, but I've got you. And he's not going to drop you, right? Like human fathers can do. God's got us. We should listen to him and trust in him because he's going to redeem even the tragedy for his glory and for our good. Luke 8, 51. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called, saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them not to to tell no one what had happened. Jesus finally gets to Jairus' home. By that time, there were many mourners uh, bewailing her. He goes in with Peter, James, John, Jairus, and the girl's mother. And it should be noted that Jairus, even allowing Jesus to come into his house, was an act of faith because under law, he would have been, some would have viewed him as ceremonially unclean because he had been touched by an unclean woman. Of course, the woman was made clean, so Jesus had no defilement on him. Um, But Jesus comes in. He says, do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And the demeanor of the mourners change from wailing and weeping to mocking and ridiculing. Um, The girl was without a doubt dead. They knew a dead person when they saw one. What they didn't understand is Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That to us, the death of the body, it's a permanent, unchanging condition, irreversible. But for Jesus, raising the dead is like rousing a light sleeper. You know that person in your house that you can be as quiet as you want and you're still going to wake them up? You're, getting, you're opening the door or uh, closing a cupboard and there's that squeak of the microwave or something. And there's like, oh yeah, you woke me up when you did that. 
Um, I mean, that's how easy it is for Jesus to bring someone to life. Someone who's dead to life, which is pretty awesome. Jesus is undeterred. He's not like, well, you know what? I'm getting a bad feeling from you guys, or there's a lot of unbelief in this room. No, he put out the unbelievers. He put out the mockers, and he and his disciples went in to see this little girl. And after putting them outside, it says he took him, took her by the hand, and he just said, little girl, arise. Her spirit returned. She immediately rose free of the illness which had laid her low. Jesus says, give her food to eat. She'd been raised from the dead, but needed food to be sustained. Who knows how long it had been since she had eaten. And Jesus, if you remember, after he rose from the dead, he asked for something to eat so that his disciples would know that he was flesh and blood. He was not a spirit or a figment of their imagination, but he was real. And the miracle was real. Verse 56, it says, they were astonished by what Jesus did. And Jesus said, don't tell anyone what's happened. Now, if we did such a thing, if we had our cameras out and we were watching the scene unfold, we would want it to go viral, right? We'd want people to hear about it and to know about it. But remember what Jesus had told the mockers. He said the little girl was asleep. And these unbelieving townsfolk in the future, they would see that girl at a later date and they'd say, oh yeah, I guess she was only asleep. Like they, they wouldn't have seen the miracle, but this is the cool thing. Only believers were allowed by Jesus to witness what he did. Perhaps they needed to see it to believe. It seems like Jairus and his wife needed to because they were astonished. It wasn't uh, expected that he would raise the dead. But regardless for the reason, Jesus said, keep silent on the matter, but we have no such order, right? We're called to proclaim the good news of Jesus and his, his power to change people who are dead in sins to being alive. He can even raise the dead. And we see Jesus rose from the dead. And so we have victory over sin and death through him. To make disciples of all nations, to teach them, to observe everything Jesus has commanded us. That is what we are called to do. So may we do it by his grace. The woman was healed by coming behind Jesus and touching the hem of his garment. The girl was raised to life because Jesus took her by the hand at the request of her father. In both cases, though, it wasn't power in the hem or the touch of his fingers, but it was faith in Christ that brought wholeness, cleansing, and new life. Jairus and the woman, they had this in common. I mean, in society, they had very little in common. But they had this in common, that they both knew their need and they were desperate for Jesus to intervene and to help them, to bring healing, to bring wholeness, to bring cleansing, to bring new life. And uh, friends, nothing has changed. When we seek out Jesus, believing that he can help us, he will help us and he will do it in a miraculous way. And he's working on things and there are, there are things going on that only he knows about in ways that he's going to redeem your situation beyond your plan. But we can know that he loves us and he will respond to the humble heart who is willing to, to admit a need and seek him. It's by faith in Christ we're saved, forgiven, made whole, cleansed, and now it's the life of Jesus that's lived through us. Please turn to James 5, starting in verse 13, for a point of application on this subject. And I pray it is of uh, interest and will be encouraging to you. 
I have alluded to it before, but I think it's good for us to read it. James 5, verse 13. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Since Jesus is risen and has gone to the Father and is now mediating for us at his right hand, our communion and our communication with God is primarily through prayer um, led by the Holy Spirit. And prayer is simply seeking God and it's a spiritual connection that's made through faith in him. It's as real as talking to a person face to face. Um, just like I'm speaking to you now, uh, except much more profound because it's, it's within you and it's not restricted to a particular time or using technology. It's like God, he hears everything, even things that you don't speak. Um, and praying about something, oh yeah, I'll pray about it. It's not a cop-out to say that because it's the best thing you can do in every situation because God's sovereign, he's good, he has all authority and power. And James says, if you're suffering any hardship, pray to God about it. Are you cheerful? Well, praise him. Singing songs is a prayer from your heart to God. And he receives that graciously. And he says, are you sick? This word is astheneo, which in the Thayer's Greek lexicon, it's described as to be weak, feeble, without strength or powerless, to be weak in means, needy or poor, or to be feeble and sick. And we usually look at that word as just physical illness. But the overarching theme of it is being weary, of being um, powerless, to be without strength. In the previous chapter, Jesus had been anointed by, with oil by the woman, right? Who was weeping. She had washed him with her tears and wiped his feet with her hair. And then she anointed him. This has been made into a bit of a ritual for physical healing, and God does heal. But the context of this healing is spiritual. And the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it says this, For the fallen, discouraged, distressed, weary believer, restoration is assured, and the elder's prayer offered in faith will make the sick person, the weary one, well. It will restore him from discouragement and spiritual defeat, and the Lord will raise him up. Now, isn't that awesome that when we're discouraged, when we have suffered spiritual defeat, the Lord will raise us up, not because of the elders, not because of the oil, which are perfectly fine to use, but it's the prayer of faith in Christ that does the saving. That's where the power is. It's not the laying on in hands in itself. People would want this spiritual restoration just be to be between them and God, but that's not how it is here. It has people involved in that process, praying for one another, encouraging each other. And so like Jairus and the woman Jesus sought out, who sought Jesus out, those who are weak and weary and discouraged, you ought to make the call to people to be praying for you about this issue specifically so that they can be praying for you 
and you can be raised up in strength and wholeness. Continuing on in James 5, 16, it says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Not only should we pray to God in hardship, praise him in song, or call others to pray for us, but this, with this praying, we see a confession of trespasses to one another, connected with healing and wholeness. Frankly, I think we often place our need for physical healing on a higher level than spiritual healing. Uh, physically, we're not always immediately healed when we pray, though we know ultimately we will be when we're glorified. But this forgiveness, this cleansing, this salvation, it's for us and for everyone today. You can know you receive by this. Would you agree that confessing our sins to one another is something rarely practiced? Um, we shouldn't be surprised then if our struggles with this secret sin continue and there seems to be no relief for us. It's kind of like the woman who's going and she, for 12 years, she's seeking out all these, uh, at great cost to herself, she's seeking all these uh, treatments and physicians who gave her no help, who gave her no relief. And as long as we stop short of coming to Jesus and admitting before others what is going on and what God has done to deliver and save us, then we can fall short of that place of restoration. J. Edwin Orr, he provides some really godly advice in his book, Full Surrender. He says, if you sin secretly, confess secretly, admitting publicly that you need the victory, but keeping details to yourself. If you sin openly, confess openly to remove stumbling blocks from those you have hindered. If you have sinned spiritually, and this is pretty strong, prayerlessness, lovelessness, and unbelief, as well as their offspring, criticism, etc., then confess to the church that you have been a hindrance. I was like, wow, that's powerful. Bringing secret sin into the open with someone else, when we confess our sins one to another, it breaks that power that the sin held over our conscience and it looses us from the pride which has worked desperately to cover up those faults. The desperation for cleansing and wholeness was greater in Jairus and this woman than the desire to keep it hidden. They were done with keeping it hidden. I mean, they needed it exposed and for Jesus to deal with it. And he did. Praise the Lord. So how about you? Is saving face more important than coming clean and being cleansed? Now, this always was interesting to me, that right on the heels of that, speaking about praying and singing and anointing and praying for one another, confessing, he brings up Elijah. Now, Elijah, he was a man who became very weary in serving the Lord. He had this, after having God answer his prayer, he prayed for three and a half years, it did not rain. Then he prayed that fire would come down from heaven and consume the sacrifice, and it did. And then that same day he prayed and God caused the rain to return. It's like he had all these answers to prayer, but then he hears bad news. Jezebel is out to kill him. And he says, God, I'm sick of living. It's better for me to be dead rather than alive. Does that sound like someone who is weary and discouraged, who is spiritually spent? Yeah, it does. But though he was weary... 
God met with him. God spoke with him. God fed him and strengthened him. And maybe you're struggling today. Maybe there's a hardship. You feel like giving up. Maybe you've already given up hope. You're like Jairus. You're like, all hope is lost. The child is dead. Why should I trouble the teacher anymore? Or maybe you're like the woman who you've suffered for a long time and you've gone through all these, you've had oil anointing you. You've, you have prayed. You have done all these things. But you look to those things perhaps rather than to Jesus in faith, believing that it's only him that you need. But you're going to involve others in praying for you. Friends, there's hope in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for cleansing, for healing, for wholeness. Right now, if you will believe in him, if you will trust him, if you'll confess your weakness, your sin one to another and pray. And God has good work. He had good works for Elijah to do and he has good works for you to do. Works that you never dreamed of in ways that he will uh, use you for his glory. He has awesome plans for you too. And I pray that you would seek him and that you would, in dis not just because you want to discover what the plans are, but you will draw close to him. And in knowing him, you'll be led in the upright way. The cleansing, the healing, the restoring touch of Jesus Christ is a prayer of faith in him away. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this uh, example, this real living parable almost of uh, your desire to heal, your power to restore, to do things that no matter what we tried to do, we can't bring someone who, back from the dead or heal them of illness. We can't get rid of the uncleanness, Lord, in our, in our hearts, in our heads, in our bodies. It's only you who can do this work. And so we come before you now, Lord, desiring you to move in our hearts, that we would receive that touch of your spirit to be prompted to trust you, to not be afraid anymore and to believe, to be confessing our faults one to another, to be praying for one another, to be admitting our weaknesses and that we're not perfect. And we're, we're not going to try to just keep up appearances and play the hypocrite anymore, but we're going to be real and honest and true with you and with our brothers and sisters, with our friends and family, with those around us, that we would be like you are, without sin, choosing to trust God, choosing to obey God. And Lord, may you do a great work in, our, in the body of Christ, in Calvary Chapel, Sydney, and all of our brothers and sisters across the world, and in your people, wherever they call upon your name, Lord, hear them. And quicken us, Lord, to encourage each other with compassion, and with grace, not walking in sin or using grace as a way to, to hide it, but that we would honor and glorify you now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.